0: my grandma has always said it's wonderful that you have so many friends and i agree with her during the pandemic i realized how much i miss seeing the people who make my life so bright and interesting and i wanted to find a way to introduce all of these stars to the world and so i created this podcast You, dear listener, will get a chance to be introduced to those who make my world hum with possibility. We will talk about serious things, silly things, sad things, glorious things, and things that make us feel alive. So settle in. It's just you and me. Hello, everyone. We are back. I am Maybe I'm thrilled, no, I'm very thrilled to, to unfortunately not be eating lunch across from the gentleman that I am looking at, but I am speaking to my friend, John, and I would love to know, John, who are you? How do we know each other in either I, order? In I, any I order you I can't believe want. you don't
1: know that. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> this for, is to, this is a baseline for everyone else.
1: All right then, well, for those I listening certainly at home. Know,
0: I certainly know how we know each other.
1: <laughs> Julie and I have been good friends for years and years and years uh, growing up together in Elmhurst of all places. Uh, We went to school together, uh, hung out. No wait,
0: we were in junior um, high, right? We didn't, we were not
2: in middle school. Not starting grade
1: school, no. It was was junior high. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: We've been like sixth grade. I feel like I I
0: actually, well, we probably had a class together. We probably had class together, but my primary memory of, like, the earliest memory I have of you is dressing up as a garbage man for <laughs> Halloween, and you and Liz and Ryan, I don't think LJ was there, dressed up as garbage, and we went trick-or-treating.
1: It was, we were pretty creative back then.
0: <laughs> and then we read Clan of the Cave Bear in Liz's house, which was scandalous.
1: Yeah, we, we got a little little more interesting as we grew up but that that was how it started and we still yeah. have that photo
0: <laughs> that's right that's right and then we reconnected I don't know because of Facebook in like 20 2007 or so I mean we've always been friends like we've always been friends but
1: yeah well it wasn't like we we had a, a weird night reading and <laughs> stuff like garbage and of
0: fallout.
1: haven't talked to you for 20 years but <laughs> No, uh, I think after everybody went away to school and getting back together, uh, yeah. and it was probably something like a Facebook or something like that Yeah. the yeah. reunions, and uh, a yeah. little easier to stay in touch after you get right. done with all that stunning.
0: Right. So who, so tell me who you are. Tell me about you.
1: I'm, I'm John Schreiner. I'm a, a dad of three. I've got, I have a daughter. Recent. Sure recent twin. So I went from a family of three to a family of five with uh, yeah. three of those individuals under the age of two. God bless. Uh, yeah <laughs> so uh, my, my wife Miranda and I have been very busy not sleeping as much but really enjoying it. Uh, yeah. We live in Chicago. I mm-hmm. work as a corporate attorney in the city uh, in mm-hmm. my house these days. Yeah and, uh, you know, really spend a lot of time with my family and and before that or outside of that, when I get some free time I like to do things in the outdoors.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's exactly what we're gonna talk about today but it'll be a little bit more specific. Okay. But first I wanna ask you what got you into liking the outdoors? Like what is, where where in your life did you all of a sudden think, wow, this is great. And then eventually I'm gonna buy land in Montana.
1: Sure. So I I think, I was like a lot of kids where you liked animals, so if your neighbor had a dog or your grandma had a cat or something, that was a really exciting thing as a one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old. Eventually, it was the squirrels and rabbits outside and in the (laughs) trees on your front step. And then uh, my dad would take my brothers and I to the forest preserves Mm -hmm. in Milwaukee, where we grew up. And we'd spend a lot of time going out, uh, you know, hiking around, running around, as, as young boys do, sort of burning yeah. off steam. And eventually we started focusing on what was specifically there in, in those woods. So we'd do games like, you know, to find the, the deer tracks or how, yeah. many, how many squirrels can you see. Uh, remember going out, uh, it was a really special thing because you got to stay up past your bedtime and go out at, at, after dark and look at the raccoons going into the garbage cans along the parkway, and that was our, our wildlife experience in Milwaukee, uh-huh. uh, and, and that grew. At, at some point, my my family got really interested in, in the Rocky Mountain West, and we mm-hmm. started doing family vacations to Yellowstone National Park, and that was really yeah. my first introduction to uh, larger game, uh, bigger vistas, and uh, spending more extended periods of time rather than just kind of a day trip up into the woods.
0: Yeah. And you, and talk about a little bit, talk a little bit about, and this is something that you and I have discussed ad nauseum, primarily because I am not a very excited human being about guns and hunting, but I enjoy talking to you about that because I think that you bring um, perspective that I never really think about. So when did you start getting into hunting?
1: So I got into hunting or, or got interested in hunting probably in junior high school. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was it was we were flying back from a family vacation and we didn't have anything to read this was before you got your tablet and spent all (gasps) your time as a kid so you actually had to read the conversation it was it was crazy the dark ages and in one of the the newsstands in the airport there Mm -hmm. was a a magazine with a picture of an elk on it okay magazine about elk we Went out and saw Elton Yellowstone let me get that and, yeah. I and it turned out to be a hunting magazine outdoor life and oh uh, read it cover to cover on the plane in part because I it was really interesting and I liked the stories and in part because I was on a plane and that was all that there was to do and you know we right. were not going to put their books down to uh do anything so that's that's where it started and it, huh. it kind of appealed to me and there really wasn't anyone who was still hunting in my family at the time. I, okay. I had some grandparents that did for a bit but it sort of hung it up and um, it was an interesting thing being in a city at that at that point living in Elmhurst Illinois and yeah. trying to find ways to get introduced to hunting and I, yeah. I beg borrowed and steal from anybody that would give me the time of day and maybe help point me in the right direction uh, my my parents were, my mom was anti-gun. My my dad was maybe agnostic, but they yeah. didn't grow up with firearms. We didn't grow up with right. firearms, so it was a long uphill process for me to convince them that I I needed that first BB gun, and then eventually a rifle or a shotgun. And yeah, uh, it it took a while uh, to to get involved there. But th- that's sort of what initially got me interested. And then I did my first uh, pheasant hunt with an uncle of mine. We went out in Wisconsin. We saw a pheasant and i was so excited that uh after it flew away my uncle said why didn't you shoot and i said well i was i was looking at that pheasant i forgot what we were here to do and (laughs) i think that's an important thing because for for hunting it's more than just harvesting it's more than just killing it it, it's the total experience and it's what you see and what you learn and what you experience when you're not actually killing something that that makes it versus uh harvesting
0: yeah, yeah. And I think I think that's that to me that's where when we've talked about this because I'm pretty anti-gun as well. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I've I've ha- I I feel a little more respect for not all hunters, but for many hunters because I feel like there is a love of nature and it's not necessarily to shoot and kill, right? I mean there's mm-hmm. there's kind of there's a lot more layers to it. And so talk like but I think, is that a common feeling among hunters or like what? And obviously you can only speak to your own experience, but like, what is the, how do you draw that line, right? Where you're like, I'm going out because I want to kill something, but you know, where, where does that line come in for you personally?
1: You know, that's a good question, Julian. It's kind of interesting because I think that there's sort of an evolution of, of a hunter. Um, okay. when I, I started out as, as a young boy hunting. I was fascinated, uh, enamored. I, I didn't shoot that first pheasant, but man, I really regretted not shooting a pheasant and having something yeah. to bring home and, and show to my brothers and sister. And uh, early on in, in my career, uh, as, a, as a fisherman, as a hunter, yeah. uh, bag limits were important. So a bag limit. Uh, the, the states these days, and they didn't always do this, and we can talk more about sort of mm-hmm. the, the sort of conservation in North America, but the states will set seasons, harvest quotas, limitations, license requirements, and a whole slew of things that you have to follow as a hunter to, to not go to jail. And one of those is bag limits. So I can't go as a hunter and shoot as many deer or squirrels or rabbits as I you know possibly can. There, there's mm-hmm. a limit uh, set by the state as to how many of these animals uh, I might be able to have an opportunity to shoot. Yeah. Uh, and depending on the animal you know some states there's actually a lottery system to to have the opportunity to go hunt an animal that uh the supply of the excess animals there's more than uh are necessary to maintain a, a healthy population but there aren't enough for every person who wants to go hunt one to, to shoot one so yeah. early yeah. on for me it was, it was bag limits is really you know coming home and saying, oh, I, I shot all the rabbits I was allowed to, or I, I got my deer. And, and that was a big focus for me. And, and it wasn't just a function of youth, but it was also a function of experience. And as I spent more time and, and had more experiences, learning experiences uh, in the field uh, and sort of explored hunting generally more so, uh, I, I think I evolved uh, as an individual where there were things that became more important to me, things that became less important to me. Mm. Uh, but ultimately there was a, a broader experience that I was enjoying because uh, I wasn't so nearly focused on on that killer. as mm. uh, defining my success in the field.
0: Yeah. So what about, you brought this up, what about conservation is important to you, you know, as you are someone who wants to go out there and, and, you know, hunt or fish, uh, what, what, where does that play into, into your thinking?
1: Well, for me, I I like going out to hunt or to fish where the goal is to, you know, capture a a fish and release it or eat it or, or Mm -hmm. to kill an animal. And, uh, but I also like to go out, uh, to explore. Uh, I like to backpack. I like to camp. I like to canoe. Yeah. I like to take a walk in the woods, you know, pick wild mushrooms or, or just go in and, and take some pictures and, and mm-hmm. enjoy it. And it's interesting because when I'm uh, deer hunting in Wyoming, for example, yeah. I'll wake up about two hours before sunrise put on a, a pack that has all the gear that I need to survive a, a night in the woods if something could happen and I get stuck up there.
2: Mm-hmm. Everything
1: I need to you know, kill a deer and get a deer out of the woods uh, back to my cabin yeah. and I'll start out with an, an hour hike straight uphill and I'll climb a 800 feet or something in yeah. the dark in grizzly country you know looking at wolf tracks maybe in the moonlight and yeah. get up to where I want to be where I, I hope there's going to be a deer at some point. And it may be snowing. It, it's definitely not going to be pleasant,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: and then you you start hunting. And yeah. when you're up there, you do see I've got, you see grizzly tracks in the snow that are reflected by the moonlight. You see the sunrise. You uh, have experiences that you might not otherwise have if if you were just going out looking for a deer mm-hmm. uh, to take its picture. And it's weird because a month later if you were out in Wyoming with me and said, hey, let's go, let's go see some deer tomorrow. I'm mm-hmm. not gonna say, okay, Julie, switch your alarm for 4 a.m. And, and we're going, and there, there's easier ways to see deer. Okay. Uh, even if we wanted to go up to that place, we'd, we'd wait and maybe go up later in the day. And so the, the fact that you are an active participant in mm-hmm. nature right there Uh, changes what's going on it's different if you have that gun in your hand than if you have a camera in your hand because of why you're there what the purpose is and it's hard to explain unless you've done it but Mm -hmm. it's it's completely different yeah but you know to your question I enjoy that portion where I'm a consumer as much as I do when I'm I'm just going out with my camera Mm -hmm. and All of that is only possible because of what people before us have done and will only continue to be possible because of what people today are going to do to Mm -hmm. to make sure that we conserve wildlife and wild places.
0: Yeah, so what so I think, I think a lot of people might assume that there's a a huge contradiction between hunting Mm -hmm. and conservation. And so can you clear up that uh, misunderstanding.
1: Sure. So in, in North America, at least, and, and particularly in, in America, uh, you know, prior to the conservation movement, uh, there were people who hunted for sport. Uh, there were people who hunted uh, to put food on the table. There were people who did both. And there were people who hunted as a job. Uh, okay. so you, had, you had market hunters and they went out and they didn't have bag limits. They didn't have restrictions. And for every uh, passenger pigeon that they shot, you know, they got paid for that. There are people who hunted uh, as part of a, a campaign against uh, Native Americans, right? So you're killing all the buffalo uh, just to deprive your enemy of a food source. So while you were, you know, quote unquote, hunting, uh, you really didn't have a, a respect for uh, long-term management of populations. In some, yeah. some instances, you actually wanted to eradicate those populations. You wanted to get rid of all the bears and the wolves. Uh, you want to get rid of all the elk that were competing with the farmers and, and their crops. And uh, it was just a way of thinking. People didn't think about something's going to be gone. and It's gone forever and how terrible that would be. Yeah. Uh, but also people weren't thinking that, you know, I'm doing this because it's a sport and I'm going to do it in some sort of limited fashion or I'm, I'm doing it, you know, just for myself. Uh, when you have somebody who's doing it for a job, uh, yeah. there was a lot of overharvest going on. Mm. And so today... Uh, modern hunters uh, and and there are poachers right there are people who break the laws but modern hunters who are obeying the game laws um, you know are really only harvesting uh, excess populations so there is I would say you know with a lot of confidence there's no risk that hunting is going to result in there being uh, too few of animals or, or no animals of a particular species left anymore. The the bag limits, the seasons, all the various restrictions that are put in place are, are all scientifically based.
0: Okay. How do you hunt? So we might have talked about this before, but this is like a, this is like me asking dumb questions now, which you know <laughs> is my favorite thing to do. What do you hunt with?
1: Sure. So for, for me personally, yeah. I'm hunting with a, a firearm of some sort, okay. and it will depend on what animal I'm hunting and where I'm hunting them, uh-huh. uh, but generally for birds, uh, like a wild turkey or ducks or geese or morning doves, I'm, I'm using a shotgun, and okay. that sprays a a pattern, a, a circle of BBs, essentially, ball mm-hmm. bearings, out in a field that could be a, a foot wide, two feet wide, three feet wide. And the idea there being you have a moving target and you're going to cover a bigger area and you really only need one of the you know, 30 BBs that shoot out of your shotgun at a time to, to hit that animal. Right. Uh, if I'm hunting something like a, a squirrel that might be more uh, stationary or a deer or an elk, I'm using some caliber of rifle okay. uh, that shoots out a single projectile. Yeah. And uh, generally, the the way that I'm hunting them, you, you have time to get into position where you can wait for the animal to stop and be stationary and, and take that single shot and uh, much more precise.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Okay.
1: But people do? hunt with all kinds. People hunt with archery equipment. I, yeah. I know you're, you're a big archer, so you're halfway yeah.
2: there.
0: Huge, huge. Just yeah. constant. I have an archery, uh, what's it called? Target behind me. It's old. I don't actually use it in my home. But... Mm-hmm. Um, what do you do with your guns when, when you're not hunting?
1: Um, so for me in, in my house right now, I, I have a vault, a, a big gun safe that's fireproof and kid proof and everything else. And I, I keep them locked up and yeah. I, I did that even before I had children and, and my children certainly aren't big enough where they could get themselves in any sort of trouble with a firearm. But you never know, you know, somebody who's in your house or whatnot. It's just a responsible, good habit to get into. Yeah. Uh, for me, firearms, and without wading into all kinds of Second Amendment stuff, for me, a firearm's really just a, a tool. It's like a hammer. So mm-hmm. I'm personally not a big gun connoisseur. I, I recognize the differences between, you know, this maker, model, or that brand, but. At the end of the day, I want something that I can come out and bring out to the field. And if I point at a duck with it and pull the trigger, I'm going to have a dead duck. And right. That's, right. that's all that matters. So it's not up on display in my house. I'm not too worried, even in recent months uh, with the civil unrest and whatnot of having to, to home defend. And I'm fortunate, at least where I live there. But mm-hmm. uh, for me, it's it just they, they get clean, then make sure they're unloaded, they get locked up. Every time I take them out, the first thing I do is make sure they're unloaded. Even though I'm the guy who put them in, but you know, not a bad idea to double check.
0: Yeah. Have you? Do you think? And I know that your twins are what? How many months old at this point?
1: They uh, were three months and two days old.
0: Okay. So uh, this is it's probably continuing to evolve for you, but you also have a daughter who's a little over two. Has your view or has anything that you've thought about as far as your hunting? changed because you're a father now like maybe risks you take or anything like i'm just curious if like you're if you've shifted in any thinking because now you have a bit more dependence on besides just you being dependent on yourself
1: you you know not really yet uh certainly i I don't go as much um Mm -hmm. and when i'm out there i'll spend more time thinking about my family than other things so uh, one thing that I like and, and that's interesting about hunting, my, my dad and I might go deer hunting together out west and we could spend from, you know, before the sun rises till after the sun sets, uh, you know, walking together through the mountains looking for that deer and we might say, you know, 50 words to each other the entire yeah. day and, yeah. and part of it is you're being quiet, right, you know, you sneak up on the deer and part of it is it, you're just experiencing it and uh, so you've got a lot of time to really clear your head, which is, I, it, for me, wildly unique, uh, living kind of the fast-paced life that I do where I do. So yeah. uh, oftentimes I, I'd like to go to the woods just to have that time to kind of work through whatever it is that's been gnawing at you and figure things out. And,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and now rather than maybe working through those things that are gnawing at you or maybe I don't have as many things gnawing at me, I'm, I'm spending more time thinking about my kids and yeah. you know, what's, what's next for us as a family.
0: Yeah, and I also think it's interesting. You just mentioned that your dad goes with you hunting, whereas when you were young and you kind of discovered this, uh, you know, there he wasn't necessarily someone who was hunting with you. And so, how did you, how do you convert people in your family? Because I also <laughs> think you're, I think at least one of your brothers hunts with you as well, right?
1: Yeah. So, um, and thank you for listening. Picking up on that. <laughs>
0: Y'all, this kind, what he just did right now, that is the true essence of our friendship. He like, listen. He like questions that I would be listening.
2: But
1: go, <laughs> ahead. go ahead. So, uh, I, I think my family uh, begrudgingly at first sort of acknowledged that this is what I was doing. And, and yes. when they see how passionate I am about it, uh, they got interested. And, and for some of them, they, they came along. My sister... Uh, who's a, a vet tech she's a vegan she's protested uh inhumane uh rearing situations for yeah. caged, uh, chickens uh you know lives in portland something you wouldn't think of as is going out hunting she, she came out mountain lion hunting with me and, you know really she, she's a mountain lion yeah absolutely wow. but she tagged along to see what it was all about and she'll eat uh even though she she won't uh eat beef, she'll eat uh, deer steaks uh, on occasion. Um, knowing that you know from a health standpoint it, it's the healthiest food that, that you or I can get yeah. our hands on. Yeah. And uh, and that it's it's humane. It's yeah. Yeah, you know, the, the animal had a, a free wildlife and it ended its life a lot quicker than it otherwise would have and mm-hmm. um, and was was treated with respect. Yeah. So I think yeah. people see what you're passionate about and, and maybe they're curious and want to come and, and give it a try, or, or maybe they, they really want to, you know, do it and, and get into it. So, uh, both of my brothers have been out hunting with me, uh, at this point, one of them will still hunt. One of them says, you know, it's, it's not really for me, but mm-hmm. I'm glad that you do it. And when you get home, bring some stuff over cause we'll cook it up.
0: So that's the, that was my next question to you. What do you do with the, the animals that you, that you do kill?
1: Yeah. So, um, for me, everything that I'm going out to, to hunt, uh, I'm going to eat. And that's just uh, to some extent, there's a moral component of that. But, but more so for me, it's just a benefit. It's one of the additional things that as you evolve as a hunter, you really learn to appreciate. I've, I've yeah. got this protein source that nobody else has. You can go to Whole Foods and you can buy uh, an elk steak, but it's not a wild elk steak. It was farm-raised. Right. Uh, there there's no market for wild game in this country Mm -hmm. so I have that available to me unique flavors uh, uh, just a a great piece of meat that you have to start with that you can do anything with so uh, absolutely bring everything back I've got a deep freeze uh, just for that excess meat because it takes Mm -hmm. you a little while to to eat an entire elk even if you got your whole family helping you do you,
0: do you do the butchering? How do you, how do you actually process the, the animal? The
1: sure, meat? So, so it depends. Uh, if I have the time, uh, mm-hmm. or I'm somewhere where I can, uh, do it, I, I will do the butchering. Okay. So recently I, I, went down and with some friends and, and we shot a bunch of geese and I was in the back alley in Chicago here, uh, cleaning geese and <laughs> putting in the vacuum seal and getting, getting the weird looks from the other neighborhood dads. Uh, <laughs> But if I shoot a deer in Wisconsin, there, there are actually processors, butchers that I'll, I'll yeah. take them to some even at the grocery store where where you would otherwise get your meat and they'll cut it and wrap it. And at the end of the day, your steaks and your burgers and your jerky and everything looks just like you would get it at, at your Whole Foods.
2: Yeah, wow,
0: wow. So, all right, you're a really good storyteller. And that's the one thing that I miss of uh, with not seeing you often enough so tell us about one of the most either scary, interesting, exciting hunting experiences that you've ever had.
1: Okay, uh, well, thank you for the compliment in advance of hearing this story. And, and it's not the one thing, there's many things I'm sure you missed, but it's one of, of the things. So I'll, I'll tell you about mountain lion hunting because I think that's, okay. that's somewhat unique. Oh my gosh, okay. So when you hunt mountain lions with dogs that aren't dry ground dogs, meaning you're you're hunting them in, in the snow. Okay. Uh, also, where were you? I was in the Bighorn Mountains of, of eastern Wyoming.
0: Okay. Wait, and is your is your land in Wyoming or Montana? I think I was wrong before. What and I said Wyoming.
1: My my parents have a cabin in Wapiti, Wyoming.
0: Okay, great. Got it.
1: So we were out and what what you do to mountain lion hunt with dogs, uh, because you will generally never see a mountain lion. On your own without dogs, I've, I've spent oh countless hours in, in mountain lion country, and, and I've only, the only times I've ever seen mountain lions are with dogs. I've seen tracks, I've seen sign, I've, I've seen been close, but never never saw one on my own. And, okay, and that's not uncommon. Okay, so what we do is we we go looking for a fresh track. You're going you also
0: whose dog? Because I know I don't think you have a
1: dog. I do not. No, there there are a pack of dogs with a ranch dogs lines out there yeah uh, his name his name was Grizz uh, so in, in Grizz uh, was a, a friend and neighbor in, in Wapiti Wyoming uh-huh. uh, when Wyoming the, the state that has more pronghorn antelope than human beings uh, living in it got too crowded Grizz moved to the Yukon uh, said, oh you know, wow to, to go so Grizz is uh guiding in an outfit up in the Yukon for people who want to travel there to hunt okay but we, we went out and we're, we're looking for uh, mountain lion tracks in the snow. And yeah. when we found a track that was fresh enough, we would turn the dogs loose. And the dogs will use their noses and they'll follow the scent and they'll chase this lion. And the dogs go off at a, at a run.
2: Yeah.
1: So this lion, however long ago it made that track, went about its life, right? Maybe that lion walked 100 feet and took a nap for four hours. Maybe that lion was looking for a mate and you know walked 20 miles. You, okay. you just don't know. Um, but the dogs are running, they're not walking. So you catch up with that lion, hopefully eventually. Uh, As a person on foot in the country, we were hunting and hiking. uh, We had to follow every step that that lion took uh, to keep up with the dogs. Cause after about a minute, the dogs who are barking are are out of earshot; You can't hear them. So what's neat about lion hunting is you walk everywhere that that lion walked. And and yeah. the lions, uh, you know, take different paths than maybe the deer are taking, maybe that you would take. And it was really interesting to sort of follow that and think about, wow, there is a cat here within the last 24 hours. Yeah. Um, you come across a lot of stuff. Though. You'll come across the, the kills that the lions had made. Um, so I've, I've found a bunch of different dead deer, uh, where I was lion hunting, I'd found scenes of so the tracks in the snow where the lion had jumped an elk. Uh you could even find where the lion laid down after it ate and see its tail print in, in the snow. Oh, okay. Uh, but it's difficult because you don't know if you're going to see that lion eventually and you don't know when. Yeah. So you're going up and down mountain country in the snow and you're trying to pace yourself, right? And and you just don't know when when this day is going to end. So I think it's a lot easier and I've never run a marathon, but a lot easier to say, hey, you've got 26 miles to go, count them down, or you got five hours to go, and you can count it down, and you've got a goal. Whereas here, you don't know when your goal is going to end, yeah. or if it will. Okay. And we were following some really big line tracks, so we're expecting a really big line at the, the okay. End and the what
0: segment. does that mean?
1: Really big. These were probably the size of a of a saucer. So if, if uh, I'm spreading out my hand. Yes. As wide as it can go, the yes. tracks were bigger than that.
0: Yeah, so and was, you're about six feet tall, right? So you've, you yeah. don't have small
1: hands. Exactly. Okay. So we're, we're expecting a, <laughs> an older male lion that's, uh-huh. that's a big lion. And okay, we're following these tracks and we're following these tracks. And we thought they were fresher, but, but maybe they're not. And this lion's really been traveling. So we've gone maybe eight miles or so.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: we're kind of at the point where we either need to call it a day and yeah. start walking those eight miles back to the truck or plan to spend the night out. And okay. Grizz looks at my dad and I, and he says, that hey, he goes, well, you guys want to call it or and he's pretty big trash, but, and we're looking at each other like, I'm not going to be the guy that tells a guy called named Grizz that I'm, you know, I want to get <laughs> back to my bed. So we say, let's carry on. So we keep yeah. on hiking. Okay. And when it, it finally gets dark, we uh, build a little camp. So we we gather some firewood, get a fire going up against some rocks, move some rocks around so it reflects, cut some pine boughs to lie on, and, and lay down. And we didn't have our sleeping bags. We didn't have a tent. We didn't have dinner. You know, we kind of had what we had to eat. But and
0: there's then- a there's a mountain lion anywhere, potentially, and you're just going to take a, a snooze.
1: It, well, and I, I, where you're going at there, lions are not really dangerous. Like, when lions okay. get habituated to people, um, yeah. they start eating people. But I've, I've done lion hunts where I've, I put a lion up a tree and I've, I've climbed up and been three feet away from that lion and, it oh. and it's spitting at me, but it doesn't want to have anything okay. to do with okay. the person. There's a reason Fine. it goes up the tree. If, if a lion would stop and turn around and fight, it would kill the entire pack of dogs and the, the hunters coming. Yeah, but evolutionary you know they risk they they break a claw or something in in that fight with the dogs or more likely with a a pack of wolves they're done they're they're not able to hunt elk anymore and and they starve to death so you go up a tree you fight later all
2: right
1: so we spend the night out uh Uh wake up the next day uh or wake up probably half an hour later to grizz and my dad beating me my coat caught on fire i got too close to the to the campfire <laughs> so I, i've got that uh, and you're waking up every like 20 minutes because it's just it's cold it, it's unpleasant yeah. we're worried about the dogs that are, are ahead of us somewhere in the wilderness yeah. um, and eventually we're just thinking you know, what time is it yeah. somebody looks at their walk and, and you're thinking okay it's probably almost five and yeah. get ready to wake up for the morning and go nope it's 11 o'clock at night <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Okay. let's try to go back to sleep. Late on, you can't sleep. So finally, you know, maybe midnight or something. I can't sleep anyway. Get up. My water bottle that's between me and the campfire is frozen solid.
2: So that
1: gives you an idea of how cold it was. And we put on our headlamps and we just start following the tracks and and we're walking and we're walking. And we did this for another 20 hours. (gasps) Eventually... The dogs and the lion went over a ridge. They've been swept of tracks uh, because of the wind blowing the snow away
2: uh-huh.
1: into the bare rocks. We spent a couple hours looking, trying to find new tracks or hear the dogs hiking to different areas, couldn't find them, uh, and eventually had to turn around and, and hike uh, maybe 11 miles out. Did, to... did Grizz call it? Grizz called it, yes. Thank <laughs> you very much. <laughs> I would have stayed for another day, but Grizz called it. Okay. So, okay. so we, we hunted for you know forty some hours straight, uh, hardly sleeping or sitting down for more than an you know hour. Yeah. And, um, you know, no no meals other than what you'd pack for a lunch and some granola bars. Uh, got back, went out the next day looking for the dogs. Found the dogs two days later. <gasps> um, so, and, and these dogs were were fine. They they yep. they'll hunt a little bit and whatnot, but it was it was probably the most grueling thing that I've ever done. My dad had just finished the Marine Corps Marathon in Washington D.C. Uh, about two weeks before. He said that was a breeze compared to what we did, <laughs> and we never saw the line. And that was
2: oh. my,
1: if you get my dad talking, he'll tell the same story. That was that was my best hunt ever. It was wow a adventure, such a good time. Yeah. Uh, a great story to tell and didn't even see a lion much less you know shoot one and bring it home
0: wow I was I mean honestly I thought you were going to be like and then the next day we went out for half an hour and didn't kill the lion but we saw it like I mean but that's that's incredible and I also feel like that speaks to what I'm hoping people because again like I'm, I mean I'm not trying to change anyone's mind people can have their own thoughts and like I still don't I would never hunt that freaks me out but I do think it shows that you're not always in it for the kill right, right? I right. mean and you have a deep respect for the fact that like this lion eluded you like and you couldn't do anything about it
1: that's why they they call it hunting and not killing and <laughs> Maybe two years later, I was hunting in the same mountain range and uh, found some lion tracks and within an hour had caught up with this lion, shot this lion. This lion wound up being uh, maybe the biggest lion in the state of that a 100 shot that year and uh, probably one of the top twenty five largest lions in, in the history of of recording the size of lions out of the state, right? So that's that pat yourself on the back, you're in the record book, you got the yeah. giant lion, you're you you know, you've got a huge trophy. And and that was a great hunt too, but that's that doesn't make my my list of my top stories. My best lion hunting story is the one where I never saw a lion. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. And so to to add, to kind of end this before you get to ask me whatever you want. Um just you, you are you are part of some organizations that I think I'm going to put some links in the show notes just because I think people might be interested. Sure. Can you can you just talk to the couple of I mean I know Ducks Unlimited, um, but what are some thing, What are some groups that you're a part of that are very conservation focused and also hunter focused?
1: You bet. So, um, in, in one of the things where we're talking about hunting is conservation. Uh, hunters in, in the history of North America are, are the ones that advocated for the game laws, advocated mm-hmm. for seasons and bag limits. Um, hunters have imposed and, and lobbied to put taxes on themselves to fund conservation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the organizations that I'm, I'm really proud to be a member of is, is the Boone and Crockett Club. It, it was mm-hmm. founded by Teddy Roosevelt um, in 1907. Okay. Uh, Teddy came back from, from a trip out west and, and saw the vanishing herds and said we got to do something about this and he gathered a bunch of influential friends of his and that club which has been limited to 100 members by its, its bylaws uh, since it was formed uh, has been instrumental in a lot of uh, things for, for both hunting opportunities but also for more of a preservation so The club leaders uh led the uh the push to establish our first national park so denali national park glacier grand canyon yellowstone those were all ideas of club members and and they were sort of the levers of politics to get that done um and and you're one of
0: 100 you're one of 100 in this club
1: yes
2: wow
1: it, and I may have said 19, it, it was formed in 1887, so uh, okay. let me correct that. Yeah. They pushed for things like the Timberland Reserve Bill, which created our national forest, uh, the Yellowstone Protection Act, the Lacey Act, which which makes it illegal to uh, the interstate uh, sale and transportation of game, uh, shut down market hunting. Yeah. Um, they... Uh, they did the Pittman-Robertson Act and the Federal Duck Stand Act. So th- those are two neat things. The Pittman-Robertson Act was, was pushed by hunters and it's an excise tax on uh, firearms and ammunition. Oh. So in 1937, it, 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 was, it passed. It's an 11% tax on guns, ammo, bows and arrows. Uh, the monies go to the states uh, based off of uh, state license sales. So based on how many hunters that they have to fund their conservation uh, to date, it's raised over 12 billion dollars. Oh
2: my gosh. So, you
1: know, that's, just, that's real money. Uh, wow. License fees from, uh, you know, buying a hunting license or a fishing license to go mm-hmm. out. Uh, yeah. You know, create, uh, you know, I think it's daily something like eight million dollars from, from every, all the sportswomen and sportsmen in the country are, are going into conservation. Uh, And and that's self-imposed taxes and and fees and license fees, et cetera. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Uh, In addition, though, you you get a lot of hunters that are either volunteering their time or their dollars through clubs like, you know, the Boone and Crockett Club, the Rocky Mountain Health Foundation, uh, Ducks Unlimited. And those organizations are really focused on, you know, habitat uh, protection and enhancement and, and getting more animals out there. Um, so back in the 1900s, there were 41,000 elk uh, left in, in the country, and there's over a million today. Uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, a, a group you could, you could go to and, and join in sending your, your dollars and become a member or attend uh-huh. one of their fundraising banquets, uh, funds that. They've, they've reintroduced elk to Missouri, to uh, North Carolina, uh, to Wisconsin. They, they pay for the trapping, transportation, uh, mitigation, if there's crop damage, uh, surveying, kind of everything that goes into the idea of saying, do we want to bring this animal back to a state? So there's a lot that goes on uh, with, with these organizations uh-huh. uh, that put tons of money into the economy, uh, put tons of money into uh, federal and state uh, science, biology, uh preservation and conservation efforts, uh, help fund land acquisitions to take stuff out of private ownership and put into the public ownership for the use of, of everyone.
0: That's awesome, thank you. I mean, I, I, again, I just, I, I don't really know how many, how much people, I think people have like a stance, right? I mean, you kind of talked about this already, about guns, no guns, and, I, it, and it's much more complicated than that. And I also think yeah. that for you to point out that the people who do go and enjoy hunting are also the people who are pushing forward so much legislation to make sure that there's incredible uh, limit and in conservation for not only the animals, but also the land in general, which is something that we desperately need. So that's great. Good job. Good commercial.
1: Yeah, it, it's important. And you know, it's not just that money too, but when you, you create jobs, right, if uh, there's something like 55 billion dollars a year put into the U.S. economy alone, you know, and that's not the worldwide economy. Right. Uh, that's from hunters. That's, that's not hunters and, and fishermen, that mm-hmm. that's hunters. And when you <clears throat> put an economic value on an animal as well, I, I think you, for people who aren't going to just appreciate that animal for the reasons that, that you or I might, because it's it's beautiful, it's wild, it's wonderful,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: you can start to have a, a rancher that might view an animal otherwise as, as uh, competing with, with his cattle for grass or uh, someone who lives in a town and, you know, doesn't want to run into a deer when they're driving home from work, they can start to see an economic value there. And they say, well, you know what, having that elk here or that deer or that bear uh, creates jobs in my community. That's mm-hmm. that's what my neighbor uh, does for a living. So mm-hmm. I, I think you, you also get people who kind of get pulled in from an economic argument to be passionate about wildlife too.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Now you get to turn the tables and you get to ask me only one, one question about anything in the world. It doesn't have to be about anything that we've talked about um, to me.
1: Well, I, I'm, I'm disappointed that it's only one. So I'm going to follow up outside of the podcast with additional ones, but uh, I, I am curious. You, you said, you know, hunting, you you would never do it and never say never. What would it take course, for, for me to get you to come out and go hunting with me? Uh <sighs> And would it be different if you're not pulling and I'm, I'm sneaking in a second question here but it would be different if you're tagging along and not pulling the trigger
0: i think that's it i think that would be it because yep. i mean i love and i've actually i've actually thought about this because i i do i don't i know a couple of people who hunt but i don't know many and mm-hmm. and i i think the only way that i can well i, I do know that i feel very uncomfortable when i fish people can fish around me, but like, I just don't have, I don't find any joy in like catching a fish and then releasing it or then eating it. You know, I just don't, there's nothing about that, that I'm like, wow, that was amazing. But your descriptions of not the, the killing, but the hunting, the like looking, I mean, cause you know, I'm a photographer. So like, I love, I love beauty and I love nature. And I think I think the thing that that really stands out to me about this is that more than likely, and I could be wrong, but more than likely, a lot of the spaces that you are going into um, would you would otherwise not see because, you know, I'm imagining that you know, like when you were talking about the the hunt for the big cat, like you weren't. I'm doubtful you were like on roads, like walking, you know, like you were very much in secluded areas where there probably weren't a lot of people, if anyone. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that really excites me. Just this notion of like being able to be in a space that like, otherwise I would not be inhabiting. Um, So I think that that's great. And I also feel like, I don't know, there's, I think, I think you're right about, I think it's guns. It's guns for me. It's just, I'm scared of guns. That's pretty much it. I, (laughs) I had, um, friends in Colorado who would, because they lived in the mountains, they would have a gun in the house available in case a bear or anything came about and would put them in danger. And, um, My friend, I told my friend because even like, even like putting a bullet, like, and it's like a visceral reaction to me, like, even like having like my friend put a bullet in my hand because he was, because I was like, I don't even think I could touch a bullet. Like, I think that I would just freak out. And so I, he put a bullet in my hand and I was shaking, I was freaking out. Um, and then he was like, If you're comfortable, let's shoot, just be, and he, it was a very safe environment. It wasn't, there wasn't anything that like was was dangerous about it. And I did. And I just, it just made me feel gross. I don't know. And it's not, I don't, well, I have a problem with people who like, you know, just have guns to have guns, right? I mean, that don't hunt. um, But I just, I don't know something about it. And I, I didn't grow up around guns. I don't, maybe it was also growing up in Chicago and every single headline was just, you know, gun violence and against people. Right. And so I, I also know that it's important to have an understanding of something that you don't. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, so, cause I think in some ways even though it probably grossed me out a little bit like I'd be fascinated to see like an animal get butchered um, you know, like field dressed and everything just because I've never, I don't sure. have a clue what that could be like. And I also think it's kind of, I mean, as consumerism gets more, gets, in my opinion, closer to, you know, people wanting to have more of a sense of what they're eating and who, you know, who killed what, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I think there's an important process in that where, you know, you have a lot more reverence for the food that you're eating because you're like, okay, like I've experienced from A to B, Yes. right? Like the the process and-
1: It it drives me nuts to have, you know, leftover- whatever from from the field that you made that's in the fridge long that becomes bad leftovers it it's just you you really don't want to waste any of it
0: right right and it, it's uh, yeah i don't know but then i also just feel like uh, like there's just you know i mean and i i'm i do it cuz i eat meat but like you, you know the notion of like is just the just the the food chain, and just like you know, should I be taking this life? And I I don't know. And then it gets all like fucking philosophical. So, I mean, would I do? I would do it with you because I trust you, and I know that you have the intention that you have is pretty pure, right? But would I just go and with some rando to like go to a game? Like, no. <laughs> It would just make me feel really uncomfortable.
1: Sure. Well, we, um, we, you and I have maybe some different opinions and, and maybe for a later <laughs> episode on, <laughs> on firearms and, and you yes. know, all that. Uh, but you're just being kind of focus on, on the hunting. I, I get that. And, um, and and it's not for everyone. And to some extent, great that it's not because that's <laughs> why there's nobody else out there. And that's the right. spot that, that we'll go out to in the woods and check out. Uh, but it, it really, I think the important thing and what you're doing with, with, you've always done is, is having that open uh, open conversation and saying, hey, you know, this may not be for me. This, this actually may be something that I'm wildly against, but I should understand it. And
2: right, right.
1: And, you know, yeah. and that goes through a lot of different things in the world, but.
0: Uh-huh. So I am grateful to you always to have a chat and um, I'm I'm really appreciative. And so I'll definitely put some of the um, locate the places that you mentioned, uh, the okay. societies that you mentioned, everything in the in the show notes, so that people can have a sense of you know what you've been talking about. But yeah, great. this is great. So thanks for thanks for joining, and um, I'll talk to you sometime soon.
1: Always oh, good to talk to you, Julie.
0: I am so lucky to know such incredible, thoughtful people. And I thank you for listening. Come back soon for another episode of It's Just You and Me.